0: Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Yochi Driesen, back with the fresh from her sickbed, Jen Williams. Hi. Thankfully not on sickbed, Zach Beecham. Hi. And we are talking about something other than North Korea. We're talking about a really kind of undercovered, underappreciated, really heartbreaking story about an unfolding humanitarian crisis that's almost unimaginably huge taking place in Myanmar. Many of you may know it as Burma. The names are somewhat interchangeable for reasons we'll get into, but later. And more importantly, a Nobel Peace Prize winner named Aung San Suu Kyi. Her name may resonate because she was both a political celebrity, a celebrity celebrity, and these are the kinds of things that have been said about her in the recent past. also get to know one of my heroes, an extraordinary woman, Aung San Suu Kyi. I got it right. She's a champion of human rights and decency in Asia.
1: Obviously, you know, I was thrilled to finally meet her.
0: So there you had Will Ferrell, you had Jim Carrey, and you had Hillary Clinton, all talking about not just her as a person. This is someone who'd been under house arrest for almost 15 years. Someone whose husband died while she was under house arrest. She didn't want to leave because she was afraid that if she went to his funeral, she would not be allowed into the country. Someone who was really seen as her country's Nelson Mandela, who is now in a position of power. There is a genocide unfolding in her country, which we can get to in a second, and she's not doing much about it. And I think where I'd like to kind of start is, to me, there are two massive overarching questions. Burma and Myanmar, going from what it had been, a military dictatorship, to what it is now, a kind of fragile democracy, that was seen as a story of real accomplishment and real hope. And she was seen personally as this amazing figure, this kind of Mandela-esque figure. And are we seeing, do you think, misplaced optimism in a person, misplaced optimism in a country, or both?
2: So what's happening in Burma, first of all, is that there's a Muslim minority uh, in one of the states called the Rohingya. And a series of attacks by the Burmese military have pushed out thousands of people and hundreds of thousands into neighboring neighborhoods. And Ung San Suu Kyi has not said really anything at all and not done anything that we can tell to challenge the government's policy on this minority. It's a majority Buddhist country. And I think that does, to Yoki's point, raise some issues about what happens in a young democracy and whether or not a country like this and a leader who may believe really in democratic norms for some people doesn't believe in them for others or at least doesn't care very much about them
1: so i think that part of the the issue perhaps has to do with the fact that you know when you're a western country kind of looking at at burma and looking at this pro democracy movement it's it's really easy to kind of overlook a lot of the internal politics and the internal kind of conflicts. Um, I don't think Aung San Suu Kyi just suddenly decided that she didn't like Rohingya or like didn't, you know, really care for the Muslims in her country. I mean, this has been going on for decades. Um, The Rohingya have been disenfranchised and persecuted for decades, um, going back to, I mean, to the 1940s. So I'm assuming it was probably always there. But when we are looking for, you know, who is going to be this beacon of democracy, who can be our leader that we can kind of glom onto and support, we tend to kind of overlook certain things. We have a history of doing that, of overlooking some of the less positive qualities of the leaders that we pick to put in power or to support. Um, We've done that from Iraq to Afghanistan to South and Central America during the Cold War. Um, And I think this is kind of another case of that, that, you know, we put them up on this pedestal. They're these pro-democracy activists, so therefore they have all the same exact, you know, kind of beliefs and, you know, beliefs in the same norms and kind of liberal democracy. Um, but it often turns out they don't, that their version of democracy looks a lot different from what ours does.
0: The history of this is, is fascinating because the history of violence against Rohingya, no matter how far you want to go, and, and there are reports back centuries, literally centuries. But I want to just talk briefly about Burma because it's not something that's often necessarily in the news You know, this was a country that, until 2010, was run by a military junta. It was a dictatorship that was basically isolated from the world, and she was the symbol of hope about that country specifically. And this was something that the Obama administration, they were very proud of, that they had helped shepherd it to democracy. She was released in 2010. There was an election in 2010. She was, under the Constitution, barred from being the actual leader of the country, with control over the military, but she was given powers. She was a very powerful figure within the government, which is part of why people are saying, hey, You've won the Nobel Peace Prize. You're supposed to be Mandela. Why aren't you being Mandela? But that transition, I think, is really fascinating. The notion that this was once a dictatorship, it was a dictatorship until seven years ago. And you know, Jen, as you point out, the military still does have a lot of control over what's being basically not just ethnic cleansing, but we're talking about villages being burned. We're talking about mass rape, people being summarily executed. There reports yesterday that the Burmese military is putting landmines onto the roads that refugees have taken to leave so they can't come back. I mean, these are things that are just sort of—they don't seem 21st century in their brutality, and yet they are. Yeah, I
2: think the democratization in Burma was was heralded by the Obama administration as a real victory, right? This was something they pushed for through a diplomatic opening to Burma and seemed like a vindication of the the policy of engagement. And to a lot of observers, it seemed like that at the time. But I think one thing that this is showing us is the claim that Burma had democratized— it's kind of a sham, right? Like, this this policy has not been initiated by the democratic leadership. It's been initiated by the military, and there is not civilian control over the military in Burma. It still controls security policy. So to what extent can you say a country is democratic when they can elect a leader and sort of? The constitution actually bars Aung San Suu Kyi from technically being the head of the government, though she has many of those powers right. through an odd arrangement. To what extent can you call that a democracy when the military just runs its own show and can launch its own ethnic cleansing campaigns? I don't think you meaningfully can, and I think the U.S. under Obama was a little bit misleading about what they had accomplished.
1: Right. I mean, if you— If you look at, you know, kind of the news coverage that was about Burma, like right at that time, you know, during the Obama administration, it was absolutely, you're right, Zach, it was, you know, hailed as this victory. And it was also like this huge economic opportunity, right? Like there was going to be this massive economic opening, not just political, but it was going to be like investors. I mean, there were stories, you know kind of covering the poverty and like just the level of you know lack of industrialization and and progress in the country talking about how they essentially still use typewriters for everything for government documents and that like in front of the law courts like you would see businessmen sitting out in white business shirts and you know wearing their the sarong wrap that they wear you know sitting on the front steps with literal typewriters typing out legal documents for people and This was, you know, recently. And so it was kind of this, like, now they're going to get, you know, we're going to get computers and, like, investors are going to come in. It's going to be this, you know, massive economic opportunity. And there was a lot of hope for that. But in large part, because of this conflict, like this specifically, but also kind of the broader issue that Zach raised about, you know, lack of democracy, that hasn't really materialized in the way that that people expected. Um, there has been a lot of economic opening, but, you know, there's kind of an old famous saying in in international political economics that, you know, nobody puts money in a burning bank, right? Like you don't invest.
0: That's a phenomenal phrase. I want to use it in other parts of my life. That's just a
1: great Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a classic thing when it comes to conflict. And, you know, it it kind of goes to that argument that like, you know, do you need to end conflict first before you can do like development and aid um, in terms of growing infrastructure? And it kind of goes back to that point that like investors, you know, want stability first before they're going to put money in. And so, you know, partly, this lack of kind of economic development is their own fault of the government because they're not, you know, they're dealing with this. They call it an insurgency, right? So I think it's important we can get to that too.
0: Ironically, in some ways, investors sometimes want to go into countries that do have military dictatorships specifically because of their stability, right? Like it's when there's that kind of messy political transition to a quasi-democracy, that sometimes we are like, whoa, wait, what the hell is this? We've seen from whether it's giant oil companies run by people like Mr. Charisma, Rex Tillerson, <laughs> they're perfectly happy doing business he with... He somehow
1: still manages to get it in every time.
0: Somewhere, there's every a dorky time. listener saying bingo. Uh, but, <laughs> worldly bingo is something
2: we should release in the future.
1: <laughs> but yeah, they're
0: perfectly happy to do business with scumbags and provide the scumbags keep their country from going to hell. And I think what we're seeing here is when you have instability, Jen, as, you're, as you were saying before, the instability is kind of what drives it. But... There's one other point I just wanted to talk about really briefly, and Zach, something you raised at the outset. Our colleague uh, Sean Illing has a really good piece up on the site at Vox right now about how there's often confusion between democracy and liberal democracy. Liberal not in terms of like Democrats or Republicans, but sort of shared values. Freedom of the press, freedom of the the, uh, judiciary, basic human rights. And to your point before about Burma being called a democracy because they had a vote, this was like the definition of not a liberal democracy. You had a political leader banned by name. You had press who censored themselves. There have been articles about how reporters saw abuses of the Rohingya and didn't want to report it because they feared for their own safety. And some of the specific laws about the Rohingya are amazing, by which I mean horrifying. Right. Their, la- their language was banned. They couldn't get marriage licenses. There were limits on how many children they could yep, have. too two. R- r- exactly. Yeah. They couldn't travel between villages. I mean, you hear those kind of restrictions. You do not think democracy in any way, shape, or C- and form. And
2: citizenship was stripped in 1982, right? They haven't been able to vote meaningfully and participate in Burmese society since the opening to democracy, and I think that's a really important and misunderstood part of this whole puzzle, is that the 2015 vote in which Aung San Suu Kyi rose to the post that she has now was considered to be a major step forward for democracy in Burma. And the Rohingya not only weren't allowed to vote, but it didn't improve their situation at all. And there's a a really good piece that I read by a Princeton political scientist who studies the Soviet Union, and the former Soviet Union too. And he found that ethnicity doesn't necessarily disrupt the process of becoming a democracy. It's a question of how a country's political institutions choose to handle it. And so if the institutions are designed to include lots of different groups— And to give them an equal say, there's less likely to be a fragmentation into violence. But here, there really was an upsurge in Rohingya violence against the state, not against civilians. They weren't terrorists. They targeted the military. But the insurgency was in part a response to the fact that the 2015 election and democratization didn't improve their lives.
1: Right. They actually – so – You're right. They weren't allowed to vote. A few were. It was bizarre. The government gave out these, they're called like white cards um, that they gave out to the Rohingya because like you couldn't get citizenship. You couldn't get like an ID card, but you could get these white cards that would allow you to vote. And then they revoked them in 2015. And like a few people who had them, they let them still vote. But it was like this, they gave them this like faux citizenship light Surprise. And then promptly revoked it. They're like, just kidding. We're, we're not going to do that anymore. That was a terrible idea. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's not that they couldn't, you know, easily just give them citizenship, right? Like, giving them freedom of movement, I think it goes to the point of, like, well, why don't they, right? Like, that seems like the obvious solution. Like, why don't you just let them vote? And and I think it goes back to, and we I think we need to kind of tease this out, the, the religious— Division here, so you know, have a Buddhist majority country. So if you ask most, a lot of the Buddhists living in Burma, they don't see this as a persecuted minority of Muslims. They see it as either one of two things, or or both. Either they're basically like leftover guests that were brought in by the you know during the colonial era. Um, they see them as rude guests. They're they're not thankful that we give them as much as we do. Um, They refuse to call them Rohingya. They call them Bengali, as in like, you know, Bangladesh. They refuse to—so Rohingya is their own kind of self-identified term, and they will, you know, the government as well, will outright reject even referring to them as that word. That word doesn't exist to them. You can't say that. Um, So, I mean, and there are, you know, these Buddhist—Buddhist—there are these Buddhist nationalist monks— it's hard to say, um, who are like these really hardline nationalists who openly agitate, you know, against this Muslim minority and say, like, these Muslims are trying to take over. That explains, like, the limit on them having children because they're like, well, these Muslims are going to have kids. They're going to, you know, take over the population. And then we won't be, you know, a, a Buddhist majority state anymore. Like, you know, the glorious days when we were all united by Buddhism, which is, is bullshit. And, but.
2: and to put some context to that, the Rohingya are roughly 5% of Burma's population, right? There's a million of them. And there's no chance that they could possibly, quote unquote, outbreed.
0: The in 70,000 people in two weeks is staggering in and of itself. But then that was out of a million, right? The population roughly before they, they started to flee was about a million, give or take, depending on the numbers you use. So more than a third has left in two weeks. It's sort of extraordinary. And Jen, there's one point in, in what you're saying I want to tease out a little bit. And you mentioned that they're called Bengalis as a slur. And Burma and Myanmar It's like the textbook example of contested political narrative, which you see in other conflicts. You see that in the Kurdish conflict. You see that, obviously, with Israel-Palestine. And specifically with Bengali, as a slur, what they're referring to is that this was once a colonial country. I mean, this was something else that the British, thank God, really nicely done. Britain, this has been a well-drawn lines on a map. But there was a feeling within Burma that these were Bangladeshi colonists, basically, that the British took people from Bangladesh from other countries who were not themselves Burmese and kind of planted them inside what is now Burma. And so when they're saying Bengali, it's a specific slur because they're literally saying you should be from another country. You should be a citizen of that other country, not of ours. You are alien and you are not allowed here. Problem, of course, Bangladesh, which is where these people have fled to, the 370,000 who fled are basically in refugee camps in or on the Bangladeshi border. This is itself an impoverished country, which itself doesn't want to. They don't want them
1: either. Right. And and so
0: like, it's always dangerous to draw parallels and say like Israel-Palestine, but of Southeast Asia. But some of these themes kind of recur. So you want to look good in your underwear and you want to be comfortable, but that perfect balance is hard to find. But you don't need to sacrifice style and you don't need to sacrifice comfort. Check out MeUndies.com and find the best pair of underwear in the world. These are the most comfortable pair of underwear you will ever own. They're made from a sustainably sourced, naturally soft fabric that is three times softer than cotton. I can say this from experience, we wear them at Vox because MeUndies is kind enough to send us some. They are fantastic, so we can endorse this in a very literal and personal sense. They're eco-friendly, they're soft, they don't shrink. They are 100% money back, satisfaction guarantee. If you don't love them, MeUndies will give you the money back that you spent to buy them. Right now, MeUndies has an exclusive offer for our listeners which is 20% off your first order and free shipping. And again, they're so sure you'll love this underwear that they'll offer you 100% satisfaction guarantee. You order the pair, you don't love that pair, you get your money back. So basically, this is no risk. It's a no-brainer. You go to meundies.com worldly, meundies.com worldly, you place the order and you will get the best and softest underwear you will ever own. So this is a limited time offer. Don't wait, start wearing the best underwear of your life. It has changed the life of me, the rest of the Worldly team. And it's time to let meandis change yours. Meandis.com backslash worldly. No, the, the
2: colonialism point is really important uh, because it resonates in a lot of other countries and, and shows some consistent patterns about how how the world is really structured today, right? So what happened is that the British controlled not only they took over uh, what's now Burma in 1826, they also administered what's now Bangladesh as part of their colonial mandate there, and they opened up the borders between those two places so people could go in and out no matter what, which is part of how this notion that Muslims who really have been in what's now Burma for a long time are foreign. Uh, The second thing that they did is they brought in administrators from the Indian subcontinent to uh, to run both finance and some political institutions and that created a lot of resentment for these people among the buddhist majority they thought that the muslims who they associated with british colonial administrators were a favored class and were oppressors who were part of the people that were controlling them this the same thing happened in syria interestingly The Shia minority in in Syria was empowered by French colonial administrators. It's a very common divide-and-conquer tactic by colonial empires. But what it does do— Rwanda. Rwanda is another good example. It creates a deep sense of resentment uh, between ethnic groups, a sense of anger by the majority at the empowered minority— and a sense of threat by the minority against the majority that's now angry at them. So colonial administrators created a lot of these hatreds that people now say are immutable and forever, but in reality are a product of specific political choices that Western leaders made.
1: Right. And and the problem is that because of all that history, you now do have this conflict that is there, right? Like. You can't undo that. So those hatreds now exist. and And the problem is, you know, like I said, like there are clear things they could do. Give them citizenship, allow them freedom of movement, Stop, you know, disenfranchising them from from society and from the economy. Um, but they don't want to, right? And I think that goes back to the conversation about Ang San Su Kyi and why she won't say anything. Um, you know, she the statements that she's made uh, in recent week or two have been, you know, really, really lukewarm not specifically calling out any kind of violence about the Rohingya, um, just saying basically, well, you know, we're not a perfect country. We're trying to, you know, protect everyone. Um, you know, we obviously don't have perfect resources, but we're doing the best we can, and we definitely think it's important to protect everyone. And it's completely lukewarm. And and part of the reason why is because there is this widespread hatred and dislike for, for the Rohingya minority. And And, you know, analysts look at that and say, well, she doesn't want to lose her support base, right? Like that would be a huge political misstep for her if she were to, you know, basically give some sort of compassion, even like basic human compassion, let alone like political support or, you know, saying we should maybe stop doing this violence to this minority, but she won't do it.
0: So this is a woman, and I I do want to just for a second, Jenny, there's a lot that you rate there, especially on the politics side, because it's interesting. She is saying this is fake news. And we're fighting terrorists. I mean, if it sounds familiar, the fake news part in particular, these are the excuses she's using. She was supposed to come to speak at the United Nations General Assembly in New York next week. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And she just canceled the trip. But to give a sense of who she is and why she had this celebrity that she had until recently, U2 wrote a song about her called Walk On. There's a movie about her called The Lady with Michelle Yao. Not very good. But this is— Is that what that
1: U2 song is about? Yeah. That's hilarious. Sorry. I was not aware of that. Also, I hate U2. Woof.
0: Jen with the anti-YouTube hot take. My hot take. Yeah, I'm with Jen. I will stand alone.
1: Ban in, Bono.
0: In my love for the earnest foursome of our Irish friends. But I do want to play a clip. This is what she sounds... Is that sound- a YouTube clip? We were thinking about that. but No. this is from uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's Nobel Peace Prize speech. After she was given the Nobel Peace Prize, you'll hear kind of what she says that sounds great to Western ears and what people thought she would be once she had power. I began to understand the significance of the Nobel Prize it had made me real once again. It had drawn me back into the wider human community. And what is more important, the Nobel Prize had drawn the attention of the world to the struggle for democracy and human rights in Burma. And so here you have a person explicitly saying that the prize that she got, the most powerful in some ways and, and most high profile prize certainly you can get, was a reminder of human rights and democracy in her own country. Flash forward, she is a person running a country. I mean, not controlling the military, which is very, very important, but she certainly has power in her country while these things are happening all around her and she won't speak up.
2: Yeah. Right. What, what this strikes me as and what it feels like as an American is like we had recording technology when Thomas Jefferson was alive, right? The rhetoric of universal human rights and equality is so stirring and so powerful when you hear her talk. Yet simultaneously, Jefferson was a slave owner, a tremendous racist, uh, and believed firmly that there were classes of people who were superior to others. And he worked to enshrine that in this government that he was dedicating and that in his own ideas stood for universal equality and human rights. Uh, This is essentially from what I can tell her position. It's, democracy and human rights are great, but we don't really care if they don't apply to a certain group of people because they don't count in my moral sphere of significance. Or maybe they do privately, but who cares because it's not affecting how she's behaving towards them publicly. It's now in in a lot of countries who recognize that as the hypocrisy that it always was. But if she were speaking in the 18th century, honestly, and you just change the names a little bit, it, it would have been totally accepted and she would now be revered
1: as a hero. I think that's a really great point. I hadn't made the Thomas Jefferson connection, but that's really brilliant. Um, I I love that. Um, I think going back to to the point that Yohi raised about, you know, that she doesn't control the military, uh, I think it's important to talk about like what she could and the limits of what she could do. I think, you know, it's absolutely critical. She is this, you know, huge revered figure, you know, mother Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, there's like praise for her in the streets when she, you know, drives by, Um, You know, it's kind of this, like, worshipped hero figure um, among a lot of people, both within Burma and internationally. So the words that she says, if she were to come out and say, like, absolutely, this violence against the Rohingya is, you know, unacceptable, must be stopped. These people deserve to be treated, you know, like decent human beings. That would be really powerful. She doesn't control the military. She doesn't have the ability to get them to stop doing these massive kind of raids, and they have essentially the entire, like, you know, Rakhine state where Rohingya um, live kind of on complete lockdown, you know, controlling everything, you know, going in and out. Um, you know, reporters can't really get in. Um, information is hard to get out from there. And, you know, burning down villages and their reports of, you know, rape and murder and, and all of this. And, you know, she doesn't necessarily have the ability to give an order to stop the military from doing this. But the broader kind of hatred and perspective and view of the Rohingya in Burmese society, that's where she has a huge role to play. That's where her power and, you know, the bully pulpit, right? That's where her kind of leadership would be really, really useful. And that's where she's falling down.
0: You'd flagged something earlier on that I'd like to return to, because I know it's something that also that you've studied a lot, both journalistically and before. You'd flag that there was an insurgent element to this. And when you ask the Burmese government, the Myanmar government, they say, that there was a, a terror attack against their own security forces. This is in response to that terror attack. Obviously, we're seeing collective punishment on a massive scale. But, Jen, could you want to talk that through a little bit? Because you mentioned, like, is this an insurgency? Is this terror? What's the violence that this takes, the form it takes?
1: Sure. So, the Mujahideen, the, the Muslim kind of holy warriors, if you want. Um, it's kind of the best translation, even though it gives it interesting connotations. But anyway, um, there have been kind of Mujahideen movements in Rakhine State, in Burma, among the Rohingya, going back for decades. I mean, they met with, you know, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the father of Pakistan. There are long-standing ties to the Pakistani Taliban, to the Afghan Taliban. Um, some of the groups who are involved right now um, have actually, like, fought in Afghanistan, um, you know, during the 1980s. So there are lots of ties between the kind of more militant side of of the Rohingya. And I think, you know, it's important to look at, right? So you have this Muslim minority that's being completely oppressed, you know, for decades and decades and have all these, you know, slights against them and, and violence against them. And, you know, there are people who decided to take up arms and use a violent approach to fight back, right? Now, whether we call them terrorists is a political and an academic question, right? So like Zach said earlier, I agree. I don't think an attack, you know, by an armed group against a military oppression or against police, like those are the forces of the state that are oppressing them, that under a lot of definitions of terrorism doesn't qualify as terrorism because they're not attacking civilians. They're attacking like the direct military forces. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's militant violence against the state. And because they have these ties to kind of the broader transnational jihadist community, it gives the government an opportunity to use that and say, see, we're part of the global war on terror. We're fighting the same bad guys you are. We're just trying to fight back against these evil terrorists, these Muslim terrorists who are trying to kill people. And there's some truth to that in the sense that there are Rohingya Muslims who are using violence against the state. That's not made up. The question is whether, you know, that is a legitimate way to fight back against oppression, whether there are better opportunities, better ways that they could do that, um, and whether this massive state repression against that is appropriate, is useful, you know. Basically, you wait, know,
2: wait, wait, wait. We we don't want to debate whether this kind of state repression is appropriate or useful, right? Like this is ethnic cleansing. There's no, no debate no, no. over
1: whether it's acceptable. I don't mean for me, I mean for them in terms of useful in terms of what they're trying to accomplish. Right. No, you're absolutely right. <laughs> it's unacceptable, full stop. What I mean to say is from a from a from the government perspective, whether, you know, if they do see that they're trying to stamp out this insurgency, is this massive you know, over-the-top repression rather than kind of engagement, trying to figure out ways to work together. Is that, like, going to, you know, if you wipe out these people, it's also creating this kind of more militant, it's... it's bringing violence on the other side back into it right so it's making people want to fight back with violence and they're able to recruit more and more because they say look we're the only one standing up for you against this government violence so they're able to recruit and that's when you end up having these protracted kind of conflicts
2: right but i do think it's kind of a category error to talk about it as an actual like counterinsurgency or counter militant activity uh It's true that the recent crackdown, the one that sent uh, hundreds of thousands of people fleeing the country, started in response to an attack by uh, Rohingya militants. But this is not the first time that the Burmese government has launched essentially an ethnic cleansing campaign in Rakhine, right? They did the same thing in the late 70s. They did the same thing in the 90s. And in both cases, multiple hundreds of thousands of people fled the country because it was mass violence targeted against civilians, Right here, as we've discussed, there are houses being burned, there's people just being forced out. And while this is part of their counterinsurgency doctrine that they've developed, it really is a brutal military. It's also motivated by concerns about ethnic purity, right? This isn't just we're trying to figure out the most efficient way to fight the militants, it's we hate these people and we're happy to kick them out, and we don't care how much force we use against them, right? This isn't thoughtfully constructed to stop a militant movement. It, it's, it's about something much broader than
0: that. I think it's also the case that they can make a rational judgment, and and your point before is well taken. None of us are saying by rational we endorse it, or that this is morally acceptable. But you can envision the military junta, which still has a lot of control. I mean, It's no longer junta, but there's still heavy military influence saying, we hate these people. They've been a problem, in our again, this from their point of view. Now we're saying it uh, in a kind of moral or objective point of view. We hate them. They're not legitimate citizens of our country. They are foreign implants. We don't like their religion. They're inherently violent, blah, 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 blah. Previous governments have tried and failed to get rid of them. We can. We will succeed in doing what previous governments have failed to do. We've driven out 370,000 in a couple of weeks. There are 600-something thousand left, so we'll get rid of the rest. And, and I think what's an interesting test now is Burma, Myanmar, this is not a country the world typically pays much attention to. Just the reality. It's not usually in the news. It's not usually something that we would discuss on a podcast that other New York Times would write about, that the UN would talk about. This isn't something typically the world pays attention to, especially now with North Korea, with Syria. And in some ways, the test to me, like sort of of the morality and geopolitical effectiveness of a lot of the Western institutions and values that have spread to much of the world beyond the West, of can the world stop? Will it try to stop ethnic cleansing? It failed in Syria. The type of mass carnage is still going on. certainly has failed to protect the population of North Korea. has not worked in parts of Iraq. Will it work here? I mean, can you stop a military that's been pretty successful by its measure in driving out this community? Can you stop it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the question is how. Like, how would you stop it? And, you know— there are statements from the U.N. calling on on the government. You know, there's one, I think, just out today calling on the Burmese government to stop this. And that's all well and good. But what if they just say no, which is what they're doing? Then what do you do, right? Like, are you going to send troops in from, from which countries, right? It's not like the U.N. is a standing army. They have peacekeeping forces that have to be, you know, accepted by the parties to a peacekeeping. There's no peacekeeping agreement here. There's no reason for the U.N. to get involved. There's no— mandate for them to, you know, it's not like the U.S. is going to step up and do anything. You know, so so what happens? Do you go back to, you know, economic sanctions? You sanction the government, try to get them to stop doing that. You know, those are the kind of options that we've saw before, right, against, you know, military governments and dictatorships. It's what we see against North Korea, right? But again, like, is that really going to do anything, Um, You know, you can send aid to the camps in in Bangladesh and you can talk to the Bangladeshis and try to see if you can work out. Like, I think there are things to be done that can, you know, mitigate some of the horror. Um, But in terms of getting the Burmese government to stop this, I think that's a much broader, like, cultural kind of shift that you have. Like I said, there's strong support for, you know, this kind of anti-Muslim kind of violence in Burma. and. I think, you know, to go back to the to the issue of like the jihadist groups, the problem is that, you know, the narrative that, that these are terrorists, that we have to wipe out, and this is part of the war on terror, gets really complicated when you have statements from Al-Qaeda, like Central, um, that just came out. Uh, there was one, so uh, I guess on September 12th, so just recently, um, Al-Qaeda issued a statement saying... Um, In part, the savage treatment meted out to our Muslim brothers in Burma shall not pass without punishment. They urged Muslims worldwide to send aid, military support, um, weapons to the Rohingya. This is a cause that they have kind of brought up over and over again. Um, Al-Qaeda has. But you have even, like, ISIS now kind of getting involved, saying, kind of paying attention to this. So in Dabak, the ISIS, uh, one of their main propaganda magazines— Um, They interviewed one of the leaders of—it's an ISIS offshoot in Bangladesh that has said, you know, we would like to launch operations in Burma if we had the capability to. You know, he's given interviews in ISIS propaganda magazine saying, like, you know, highlighting the the cause of the Rohingya. So the problem is you may have this domestic kind of group that's fighting for their own political rights, but it could become internationalized. And then you have a much harder problem because then you would have— legitimate transnational terrorist groups operating, and then it becomes a much more complicated situation. So what
2: you're saying is that when governments respond to demands for self-determination with force, that creates an opportunity for extremists to come in and hijack the situation? A little bit, yeah. We've never bit. seen that in any never. other countries. This
1: is new. but this like, is definitely also, new. Also, let
2: me make the case that, that something could be done about this. Uh, I, I don't mean like the U.S. sending in forces or whatever to forcibly break up the conflict. I mean... It's very clear that the Burmese government values engagement with the international community. That's part of why this whole opening and move towards democratization happened. It wasn't a mass protest movement. It was the military junta deciding it was in their interest to try to open up a little bit to the world, uh, which was very rare. It's almost Something like that almost never happens, a voluntary session of power, which means that an administration in the U.S. that was serious about diplomacy over human rights and threatening (laughs) diplomatic ties i'm sorry i laughed. i know right that's that's the point that i'm getting to like if they if the government cared about these things there's a real opportunity for creative u.s diplomacy here to try to make the situation less bad but uh, i i can't imagine mr charisma really playing a positive role in the situation but
1: even but yeah i mean but even beyond that you know the idea that It's not just like fighting for human rights and like that they, you know, that the Trump administration seems less interested. It's also that the government is very smartly framing this as fighting against Muslim terrorists. And given that what we know of Donald Trump and that he's not someone who is necessarily inclined to dig into details of conflicts and figure out whether what he's being told is accurate, you know, by framing conflicts as we're on your side fighting Muslim terrorists, you know, i can't imagine a donald trump administration sending taking any kind of action you know far far less sending troops but taking you know any kind of serious action beyond you know a statement at the un but in defense of of muslims who have in some sections of the militant parts of the Rohingya have ties to militant groups that are transnational. Like, that just seems beyond the the pale for for this administration.
0: And, and I think that's a, a good place, actually, for us to transition because you're talking about the UN. And we mentioned at the outset, Aung San Suu Kyi was supposed to go to the UN next week to speak. She's canceled it, in part because of this mass outcry, which has included people calling for her to lose the Nobel Peace Prize, to, to have to give it up. But for elsewhere, we're not going to go far. We're not going to go overseas. We're not going to go a plane right away. We're going to go an Amtrak, train right away to beautiful New York, where the U.N. General Assembly is set to begin. This is typically where world leaders fly in from everywhere to give speeches that sometimes matter, sometimes don't, sometimes are funny, sometimes are serious. This will be the first time Donald Trump will be the center of attention at a U.N. General Assembly. But to give a bit of a flavor to the kind of speeches you hear on the extreme end, we're going to hear what is without question my favorite U.N. speech ever uttered, a little bit of it. Yesterday, the devil came here, right here. Right here. And it smells of sulfur still today. So that was the former Venezuelan <laughs> president, Hugo Chavez, referring, in that particular case, the devil was George W. Bush. So bashing U.S. presidents and worrying about them is not new. But we were talking about this a little bit yesterday when we were talking about what to talk about today. That was sort of a meta sentence. But does do you any love this? those. I do love those. It makes me feel all smart and everything. But does... Uh, doesn't matter. I mean, the General Assembly gets huge amounts of press. There, there will be hundreds, if not thousands, of reporters physically there. I mean, it doesn't matter.
1: So I think we have different perspectives on, on whether it dies. I think, now listen, I don't think that it's like where the world is going to change and where massive diplomatic deals are going to be made. But I do think there's value in, in person-to-person diplomacy and having world leaders come together it's a public venue, but it's not the same way that a, a one-on-one state dinner is with like all the pomp and circumstance, you know, with just the two leaders and all eyes. You have essentially, you know, the vast majority of the world's top leaders coming together in one place, um, snarling up traffic in Manhattan <laughs> horrifically. Um, but you know, they have these kind of side talks. So, like, for example, you know, Trump and and Prime Minister, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu are planning to have a meeting on the sidelines. And, you know, this isn't like a full in front of the camera press conference where you see the two leaders like standing up and speaking and everything is watched from the way they shake hands, the way they interact, their facial expressions. This is kind of a chance for them to kind of get together and have conversations that are a little more personal, a little more direct and it brings together a broader group of people, so you can have these kind of meetings on the sidelines. I think, um, I think there were reports that Tillerson and Lavrov, um, so Mister Charisma, if you will, and uh, Foreign Minister, Russian Foreign Minister Sergey Lavrov, were going to have a meeting on the sidelines as well. So I think, you know, given that diplomacy, if you argue, and I do, that diplomacy is an important part of foreign policy, and
2: hot, know, take <laughs> hot take there,
1: hot take. I mean. Nowadays, it is. (laughs) Uh, Actually, it's kind of controversial. Um, But, you know, and then if you think that a good portion of diplomacy is person-to-person interaction, I think there is value to having these meetings that, you know, like I said, I don't think it's going to be like a revolution and we're going to, you know, solve, you know, the North Korean nuclear crisis, right? Or we're going to like have a new detente with Russia. But I think it's important to to have these kind of person-to-person contacts. Also, just because, yeah, the the sulfur, the devil was here, Hugo Chavez. That was one of the best speeches. I will have to bring up one of my favorite moments ever at UNGA, UNGA, um, was in 1960. Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev, come on, you guys, you know it. He took his shoe off and banged it on the table because he was really pissed off because uh, the Philippine delegate was criticizing the Soviet Union. So literally took off his shoe and started banging it on the table. One of the best moments ever.
0: I'm so glad that you've brought us back the demographic of people who were alive in the 1960s. That <laughs> reference was so musty that even me, as old as I am, that was even before Come my
1: dad's Come on, dad. history. And the yeah, shoe, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, famous.
0: I'm with you, though. The shoe was awesome.
1: It was awesome. Moving on. Zach, Second, no Second
2: only to the best shoe moment, which is the angry Iraqi throwing a shoe at George W. Oh, Bush. Oh, so great. Um, which has been turned into the world's best GIF. But
0: far away from New York. Okay,
2: fine, fine, fine. I'll talk about the UN. Look, I basically tend to agree with Jen. I think this is important, and not just for the reasons that she illustrated. It's that the UN, for all of its reputation as like a useless talk shop, is the only global institution that serves as a place for every country on earth to resolve differences peacefully, right? And it it retains a really serious reputation for legitimacy among people around the world. When the UN says something and there's a UN resolution, that is seen by many, many people as the voice of the world. This is people speaking together. What gets decided on at the UN doesn't have a straight line, especially the General Assembly, which doesn't have a lot of legal power, but doesn't have a straight line to uh, obvious policy changes in any one country or any one situation. But what it can do is change the way that people think about things. It can affect the norms, the unspoken rules that govern how the international system operates. And that's much harder to measure. It's harder to point to as a really key and significant moment. But it matters. And and a lot of scholars have gone through and found that things that have been decided at the UN have shaped the way that countries have acted well into the future.
0: If you're hiring and we are here, you know that it is really hard to figure out where to post the job. It's really hard to make sure you're getting the right applicants. It's really hard to make sure you're getting candidates who have qualifications for the jobs you're trying to fill. Hiring isn't easy. With ZipRecruiter, you can make it easier. You can post your job to 100 job sites with one click. And there, they've got powerful technology that matches the right people to your job, and they do it better than anybody else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them. And so 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through that site within one day. So no juggling emails, no worrying about calls to the office. You simply screen, rate, manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy to use dashboard. So here's how to use it. If you want to find out why it's been used by businesses of all size, big, small, everything in between, so you can find qualified job candidates quickly, Post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right. It's absolutely free. You go to ZipRecruiter.com slash worldly, ZipRecruiter.com slash worldly. A third time, ZipRecruiter.com slash worldly. And this is how you will find talent easily, how you will get your job seen by the right people, and how you will get those right people to work for you. Thanks for listening to Worldly. If you're looking for a new podcast to try, how about Planet Money? Give it a listen, because one thing people say about Planet Money is how much they love listening to it, even though they don't necessarily care about business or economics. It's just a smart show with great stories, it's well-produced, and it's fun to listen to. So find Planet Money on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I think what's also interesting, and just for a lot of people who don't realize this, like the UN is in New York, right? So which is in America in case you guys didn't know that. Um, But I think a lot of Americans might be surprised to, like, really think through what that means. So, like, you have foreign leaders, including, you know, the foreign minister of Iran. Like, you have enemies of America who are allowed to come to New York and stay in hotels and hang out in New York. And I think a lot of people probably don't realize that because, you know, you have, you know, there'll be delegates from all kinds of countries that the U.S. has major beef with. It's a technical term, beef um and you know they come and, and again i think that that goes to the the point you know i was making earlier that you may not have an embassy in tehran right a us embassy well we we have one it's in rough shape right now um you may not have a us ambassador you know to iran or you know to many other countries but this is a chance for these these leaders who are not going to have high-level interactions pretty much anywhere else to be able to kind of come together and at least be in the same room together. And I think that alone is really important.
0: So here's where I would—and I am I'm, I'm the minority on this one uh, among the three of us, but here would be my counterargument. If we're looking at the substance of things, the things that actually matter in terms of, of change, the UN General Assembly itself has basically no power. I Making vote resolutions, as it often does condemning, let's say, the Israeli occupation in the West Bank, nothing happens. They can lead to UN Security Council measures, which can be watered down or vetoed by the Russians or the Chinese, or for that matter, by the US, as does often happen. If we think about some of the the biggest diplomatic coups over the last, let's say, seven years, none of them, none of them had anything to do with the United Nations. So just to take through three, the deal that got rid of Syria's chemical weapons, flawed as that deal was, was negotiated basically by the Russians directly with the Syrians with the, with the US kind of on the sideline. It was not through the UN even though the UN has, in varying degrees, condemned the the Syrian use of those types of weapons. The Obama administration opening with Cuba was negotiated with the help of the Vatican. had nothing to do with the UN General Assembly. Burma, Myanmar, had nothing to do directly with the UN General Assembly. The deal, the Iran nuclear deal that we've referenced uh, in previous shows, nothing to do with the UN General Assembly. This was multilateral talks conducted and led, basically, by the U.S. Talks into North Korea's nuclear program are taking place outside the UN General right, Assembly. Right, but
2: you're you're listing off things that while important are like clear and concrete diplomatic accomplishments and I think that that's just a, a mistaken view of why the UN General Assembly matters. It's a much longer term architectural way of shaping the the way the countries think about the world and the individual people. To take a concrete example, whenever I talk to somebody who is in the uh sort of pro-Palestinian or even boycott Israel p- sort of camp, they bring up UN General Assembly resolutions as a legitimizing uh, vehicle, a way to say, look at all of these bad things that Israel is doing and look at how the world is united against Israeli crimes, right? That's That kind of language resonates with people and they use it for a reason because the UN has normative force. And what the UNGA does changes people's minds and that has a more subtle impact. It doesn't negotiate – the Iran deal. My
0: my point isn't that that doesn't negotiate a deal, although the Security Council is a place specifically for deals to be negotiated or to be forced. My point is, if you have decades of talk, literal, in the case of Israel-Palestine, and the Israeli side, for that matter, uses those same resolutions to say the world is biased against us because they condemn the Israelis at every UN General Assembly and do not condemn other countries around the world. But I I take the point that it, put in some vague, amorphous way, may change thinking and opinion. Except that if you're trying to change thinking and opinion, and you failed to do that for 60 years, at some point, a place has to be not a place simply where you give speeches that in some indirect, vague way change opinion when you don't see opinion changing, and you don't see deals happening, and you don't see anything productive coming out of it. And I, I guess the, this is, obviously, it's a it's a fair debate without a black-white answer, of course. But if the UN General Assembly continues to meet and put out resolutions that have no weight. Lean to security Council resolutions, which are vetoed. I guess that that's where where we differ. To me, at some point, there's the utility of it breaks down,
1: yeah, I think and I definitely see that see that argument. I mean, I don't think the u n is in any way as forceful as it was kind of imagined to be, and that it sometimes thinks that it is. Um, but I do think just it, it is a way of of polling kind of global countries' opinions on on certain issues. So I think, The sole fact that Aung San Suu Kyi was planning to go to UNGA and then all of this UN, you know, criticism of her country came down and now she's canceled it. The fact that, like, she will no longer be welcome, essentially, at UNGA because of this thing and that she's essentially been shunned. I think that alone is kind of an important signifier of how, you know, this can be used as a venue to express global opinion on important kind of conflicts. I think that alone kind of demonstrates that.
2: My spiciest opinion is that the UNGA is really important because eventually we need a world government, and the UN is the closest <laughs> that we have to getting one now. New world order
1: hot takes. <laughs> yeah, from, yeah, no, from I'm,
2: I'm just I'm just bringing uh, all the conspiracy theorists <laughs> out because I think that. If their conspiracies were true, the world would be a better place. But sadly, it's not, so we're not moving towards a one-world government. So, so
1: wow, I love. I think the, of the what microphone
0: may actually burst into flame <laughs> from the scorching nature. No, of look,
2: hot the nation tic. state is bad. We need to knock down borders, have an open international migration policy, and sounds like a, a globalist one...
1: cuck to me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so it's not cucking. If this is what I've always thought. <laughs>
1: To be clear, I'm not really sure what that even means. Yeah, I'm we're not we're, not we're not we're not gonna
2: talk about okay, that in right. this podcast. I'll explain it to you afterwards. Um,
1: I think <laughs> I think kind of moving beyond uh, you know, we can we could set the debate aside about whether or not it matters. I think it can matter in some ways, and in some other ways it doesn't. I think there's <laughs> I, I think it's it's fair to say that because I agree with kind of both of those arguments. Um I do think it's also just an interesting venue for theatrics. It's literally, like, a very theatrical—these countries, these leaders would get up in front. You know, the, the sulfur, the Hugo Chavez statement was kind of really emblematic of that. But you've seen this all over the place, right? So you had Bibi, Benjamin Netanyahu, give his famous— a poster board speech about Iran's nuclear program with like the bomb levels and he was like pointing it out that it's turned into an epic meme all over the internet
0: because Because that was so funny and I wish we could use images (laughs) for that because at the end of it the top bomb was what you'd see in like Warner Brothers cartoons of like a round bomb with a lit fuse. Yeah
1: and he was like holding this up this like poster board that he's like someone had made with like markers like magic markers. Which to
2: be clear is not what nuclear weapons look
1: like. Right. That's not at all what they look like. Unless they do you don't know. (laughs) No you know. but I, and I also think, like, you know, it's really interesting to see, like, you know, coming up, what's going to happen. This is going to be you know, Trump's first appearance. It's going to be his first appearance at, you know, the U.N. As this big leader, he'll be giving a speech. He's on the same, I think, segment as um, Emmanuel Macron, French president, who has an odd relationship with Trump. Um, there was a really great quote that I just wanted to— to add here, um, you know, so there's obviously really tight security around Anga because you have all these really important world leaders, so there are metal detectors. Um, I gave a speech at the UN a long time ago, and um, I was an idiot and tried to bring my suitcase because I just got out of the train. They're like, yeah, you can't bring that You're in here. Are you stupid? And I was like, well, but my suit—and they're like, just go put it at your hotel. Like, you can't—but anyway, so there's really high security— I thought this really great quote. It was an anonymous diplomat who was joking to CBS News and he said, I just hope the metal detectors can check for spitballs. Because essentially, like, you get these jeers and heckles and, like, boos because, you know, these are diplomats. They're not going to be, like, doing, you know, super crazy stuff, like, attacking each other. But, they are very vocal, and it is kind of a fun way to express your discontent.
0: I mean, you have leaders who occasionally will walk out of the room. I mean, yeah, this has been, been the case done. with Iranians will walk out when Israelis speak and, and vice versa. And, you know, Jen, you made a point earlier, which is an interesting one, and, and Zach, uh, before your pro-world government hot take, you made a similar one. You, you do, and, I, I, and in this one, I, I, defer, I give you these points. You do have the leaders of small countries being given a microphone, and the leaders of giant countries being given a microphone. So you've got relatively small places like some of the countries that have been hit hard by climate change, whose total population may be in the hundreds of thousands. And then countries like Germany, with a population of about 80 million. Last episode, one of us, I think it may have been me, but we had given it about 50 million. It is a bigger country, it's 80 million. But you do have like, everyone is given some time at the microphone. Some of them go Hugo Chavez and call people devils. Some of them take off their shoe. Some of them give these impassioned speeches to pretty empty halls. This year, we can guess which world leader will have the biggest most interested crowd, maybe with spitballs at the ready. It will be interesting to see not just what Trump says. I think he will be on his best behavior. He'll have his teleprompter. He'll do that thing where he speaks in a really low voice, kind of slowly to emphasize. Low energy. And, and then he'll, that, you know, that's how you know he's in teleprompter. And he puts tele- the
1: emphasis on the wrong syllable. And
0: You'll see, though, do people applaud? Do they walk out? Do they just sit there kind of stone-faced? We're sending a colleague of ours, Zishan Alim, who's in New York, will be at UNGA. He'll be writing a piece for the site that we'll post tomorrow morning. He has another piece posting on Monday, and then we'll be covering it every day that it takes place next week. And part of what he'll be looking for, and it gets back, I think, kind of circles back to a point Jenny made at the outset, is sort of the the more amorphous feeling. Like, what do you see in the hallways? Not just what do the leaders say when they're sidelining, but what do they look like when they're talking to each other? Right. Is there anger? Are American officials kind of welcomed? Are they shunned? It's some of the stuff that is harder to gauge Hopefully, we'll be able to gauge it by having somebody in the hallways. I've covered Unga before, and that often is the interesting part—is just to see because the leaders are just walking through. Right? Who's
1: in? Who's out? Who's in the cool club? Who's on the outs? Right? It's like high school.
0: And and just because it's something I think as reporters, some of us, you know, we know, but you don't always if you're not in journalism. But at Unga, people are literally walking through the hallways, so you might see like Vladimir Putin. He's not going this year, but he's just kind of walking with his giant, scary-looking entourage behind him. And at times, you can get a question in. It is an interesting, one of the only places where you where you can do that, whether they answer it, totally different question, but the access is there. How many times do they just pretend not to speak English? It's so, Lavrov, who we mentioned before, speaks beautiful, perfect English. Perfect. He will never do so really in public unless he absolutely has to. Uh, years ago, I was at a small dinner with him where he wanted to smoke. Vodka was flowing. He is kind of what you'd imagine. He's a heavy, heavy drinking, kind of a great storyteller. And he wanted to smoke, and he asked a waiter, "Is in Europe?" And the waiter said politely, "Sir, you cannot smoke in this room." So one of Lavrov's goons went up, walked the body, the waiter, excuse me, out into the hallway. The waiter came back in thirty seconds later, ashen and gave Lavrov an ashtray. <laughs> <So, laughs> this is the kind of person who will be there in the hallway. Yeah. Uh, I wish personally that we could be there with him. I'm a little jealous that that Zishan will be. Um, I think it's a good place for us to close. As always, if you like what you've heard, we hope you do. Come find us on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud. You can, I think, soon find us, if we're not already there, on Spotify. Rate, review, subscribe. Give us some love. You can always reach us by email, worldlyfox.com, or on Twitter. We will try to get back to everyone who emails us, because we take that. It means a lot to us. And we will be with you next week. Bye! Thanks again for tuning in. We wanted to take this moment to insert an absolutely shameless and, frankly, very proud plug for our parent company, Vox Media. Vox Media is the fastest-growing modern media company, and it's known for its standout technology and its high-fidelity advertising. The platform is what supports our growth here at Vox, and it's what allows us to go deeper into topics you, our listeners, care about most. And for us, that's national security, it's foreign policy, it's America's place in the world. But for listeners who haven't already. Check out Vox Media's other editorial brands, whether it's the rest of Vox.com, which goes deeper into explaining the stories to find in the world today, SB Nation, which tells the story behind and beyond the scoreboard, The Verge, which helps you discover what to buy, what to obsess about, what to disrupt next, Racked, which is a great site about fashion, and my personal non-Vox.com favorite, Eater, which is a great site about food, especially if you're traveling and want to know where to go and what to eat in a city you're going to. And so what unites all of these sites and all these editorial brands is a refusal to compromise on quality. We believe in the power of going deeper, and we believe in the best of our audience.